We are in Exodus chapter 7 today. If you want to turn there, it's page 49 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. We've been walking through the book of Exodus where God says that we are to stand firm and to see the salvation of the Lord. And we have been walking through it and seeing that. We've, we've, we've seen a number of characters already as we have walked through these first chapters. Uh, characters that, that it appears that there's this battle that's happening. It's happening uh, early on in chapters uh, 1 and 2 between, between the Pharaoh at that time and, and, the, and the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, and, and the midwives uh, are involved in that. Uh, and Moses is, is born and his sister and mother uh, kind of again put Pharaoh's plans aside and, and Moses is rescued, Moses is saved. We, we see this, there's lots of characters that are involved. And in this portion that we're coming to here in, in 7, 8, and 9, uh, we're, again, we're going to see some, the battles between some characters, Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron in particular. But this story, all of Exodus, this story is not about Moses and Aaron and, and Jacobet and Miriam and, and Sipur. It's, it's not about those characters. The story of Exodus is about God. And I've been saying that from the beginning, but this story that we look at today again in Exodus chapter 7 reminds us again, this is all about God from beginning to end. The story, as we looked at at chapters 1 and 2, it was about God. The story turned when we saw that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. In chapter 3, it turned again when God shows up in the burning bush and says to Moses, I am who I am. The story continued as we looked in the last few weeks at, at God speaking at, at everyone coming against God, Moses, the Israelites, Pharaoh, all of them, all of them coming when God says he was to rescue his people and God says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. I will bring you and I will give to you the land that I have promised. It's all been about God. It's all been about God. Even last week, as we looked last week at at the end of of, uh, Chapter, chapter 6, we saw the genealogy that's listed there in chapter 6, which we talked about being in an odd place that all of a sudden we have an, another genealogy. And I shared last week that this genealogy is placed here in Exodus chapter 6, not for genealogical reasons, not so that we can have a better look at the family tree, but for theological reasons. God put it here so that we would better see his glory and better understand his plan for his people. Even the family trees that we find here in Exodus chapter 6 are all about God. It's all about God. From beginning to end, it's all been about him. He places that genealogy there so that we might better see and we might better understand the new roles that God is beginning to use here in Exodus. He now has a prophet He has a mouthpiece that he is speaking to Moses and Moses is then speaking to Aaron and Aaron is then speaking to Pharaoh. 
And God has a, it's a new role that we haven't seen prior to this. God has, has spoken, he has led people, but he has not chosen a mouthpiece quite like this. And Moses is the beginning of this line of prophets that God has called. And Aaron is the beginning of this line of priests that God will use. Prophets are the mouthpiece of God. Priests are the, the liaison, the mediator between God and men, the bridge keeper between man and God. And the line of Aaron in particular, the Levite line in general, we looked at that last week, the, the Levi's sons were the ones that were put in charge of the tabernacle and the pieces of the tabernacle. But even more specific, Aaron and his family line were called to be even more in the, in the high priestly roles. And so last week we looked at some of those stories because, as I mentioned, the people who were first hearing these stories after they had been written down, they would have been hearing these names and they would have been knowing those stories. They would have been remembering the stories that I shared with you last week, the the stories of of Korah, Moses and Aaron's cousin, who, who rebelled against Moses and Aaron. And the ground opened up, God opened up the ground, and it swallowed Korah and all of the men that were with him and all of their families and everything and buried them alive. We told the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who were priests, who decided that they would add to the fire that they were that they were using in in the order of worship, that they would enhance it somehow. And instead of enhancing the worship, the fire came out from the incense and completely burned them up. God, it said, God came out in the fire and burned them up. We talked about Phineas last week, Aaron's grandson, the one who, who as the temple or as the tabernacle, as the tabernacle was about to be desecrated again, by idol worshipers and those who, who were, were worshiping Baal instead of God and especially in the midst of, of sexual indiscretions with, with uh, Midianite women, Phineas sees that, is, is zealous about God's glory and takes the spear and stabs the man and woman and kills them right there in the chamber of the tabernacle. God is serious about worship. He's serious about the, the, the declaration of his name, and he's serious about his own glory. And so we walked through those stories, and it's right after that. It's after, it's after we walk through that genealogy, after we, we see those names and we understand who those people are. It's right after that that God turns the focus back to Moses and Aaron and says, these are the Aaron and the Moses that I have called. This Moses, this Aaron. These are the guys who I am working through. This is my prophet. This is my priest. Moses and Aaron are the ones who I am going to work through. And even at the end of chapter 6, Moses is still, he still has excuses. But finally, it appears, as we turn the page into chapter 7, it appears that Moses and Aaron have finally come to the place where God has begun to give them commands. They begin to hear it. They begin to understand it. They begin to process it. And then, instead of rebelling against it, instead of finding excuses, they obey. Now, that doesn't perfect to the very end. Both of these guys are going to have some moments in the future 
But it appears, at least here as we turn the page to chapter 7, that they begin to obey and God begins to work in them even more. Let's read together in chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 1. It's on, again, on the screen. It's on page 49. We're using a pew Bible this morning. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring all of the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. We find here in chapter 7, we find uh, a bit of a, of a prelude, a bit of a, a prologue into what's about to come. And, and we know, we know the story of Exodus. You have, have heard it, you have seen it, you've, you, you know what's about to come. We are about to enter into these, these plagues that God sends upon the Egyptians that just begins to build up their resentment against God and finally culminates in God sending, or in in Pharaoh finally sending the Israelites out of Egypt. That's coming. But here, this is a bit of a prologue, a bit of a prelude for the plagues that are about to come. And even this, here in chapter 7, we begin to see that even here, God is telling us that this whole process that we're about to go through, this whole thing is about him. It's about me, he says. He saw it, you saw it in verse three. He says, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I'm going to multiply my signs and my wonders. He said in ver- a little farther down in verse five, he says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them. This is about me going to be my signs and wonders that they see. These will not be credited to Moses and to Aaron. This is about God. So that the Egyptians will know when it's all said and done, when, when we get to the end of the story, when, when they begin to march out of Egypt, they will know it was me. It's all about God. Always about God. In fact, as we walk through the plagues in these next weeks, you're going to see that, that most of the plagues, not all of them, but most of them have this same theme, this same component that shows up over and over again. God says, this is about me. They will see me. This will proclaim my 
name, my glory will be seen. It's all about God, even this little prologue that we look at here. He tells Moses and Aaron, and they, they do just as the Lord commands. Again, they are beginning in this moment, as we've turned the page, they're beginning to see and obey and to do what God has called them to do. God says to Moses and Aaron, you're going to go before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to ask you for proof as you bring this request before him. He's going to ask for proof that you have, in fact, been given these instructions by God, and they're going to ask for proof that your God is who he says he is. They're going to ask for proof that your God is greater than his God, that Moses and Aaron's God is greater than the God of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh is not looking, he's not looking to be persuaded as he asks for proof. In fact, we've already heard, we, we, we read it in this section, but we've already seen it a couple of different times. God has said, Pharaoh has hardened his own heart. God has said, I am hardening Pharaoh's heart, and that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. We've seen that a number of times, and we will continue to see it as we walk through Exodus here. Pharaoh, Pharaoh is not going to be persuaded. In fact, as Pharaoh asks for proof from Moses and Aaron, he doesn't do it so that he might be persuaded. His request is not to be persuaded, but he requests that they give proof that they will do something, give some kind of miracle, not because he wants to be persuaded by their miraculous actions, but instead he wants them to be embarrassed that they can't do anything. He wants them to be, he wants them to be embarrassed and to begin to doubt their God. He doesn't expect he doesn't expect that there's going to be any kind of miracle. He doesn't expect that there's going to be signs and wonders. He does not expect, he's not going to be persuaded by this. He wants them to make a fool of themselves. He wants them to look foolish and he wants them to begin to doubt the one true God, the God that they bring into this throne room. He wants them to doubt. Many times when we begin to have questions and when Satan especially brings questions to us it's not it's not so that we might chase down the answers and become persuaded but instead he wants us just to doubt he wants us to begin to look foolish that's what Pharaoh's doing here in this passage God says when Pharaoh says to you prove yourselves by working a miracle then you will say to Aaron take your staff and cast it down before Aaron that it may become a serpent that it may become a serpent, that his staff will become a snake. Aaron's staff, Moses' staff, we've already, seen, we've already seen this sign before, if you remember. God said to Moses, he gave him some signs in order to convince the Israelites that he was, in fact, that he had been called by God. And so we've, we already saw this sign that Moses used with his staff. Now Aaron's staff has this same miraculous ability. Aaron's staff will be used several times throughout these, these next plagues. We'll see Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff will be, will be used even in, in numbers. There's a place where, where Aaron's staff begins to, to bud and, and grow fruit because uh, Aaron is, in fact, the chosen line. Again, this priestly line that God has called. 
um, Aaron's staff becomes becomes uh, represented so representative of God's work that it actually uh, is kept and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. It's one of the items that's placed in the Ark of the Covenant that's carried around with the Israelites and then placed in the tabernacle and in the temple. Aaron is to take his staff, he's to throw it on the ground, and as it hits the ground, it's going to turn into a serpent. That's intentional that it's going to turn into a serpent. We've already talked a couple of times about this idea, but in Egypt, snakes were a big deal. They were a big deal. They, they, the, there was a, a goddess of, of snakes. Uh, there was a temple for worshiping of snakes. In fact, Pharaoh himself, and, and I have this picture again, we've seen it before, Pharaoh himself, his headdress has a, a snake, a, a kind of cobra right there on the front of it He himself was part of the snake family, or so he would have said. They worshiped snakes. They were were crazy afraid of snakes, and yet they they had a great respect. They had a, a, a worship for snakes. So it's no secret. It's it's no surprise. It should be no surprise to us that God would have Aaron throw his throw his staff down and let it become a snake. There's a couple of things that I think we see from this idea, this idea that, that his staff becomes a snake. The first thing that I think we want to see is that God always, always attacks our idols. He always attacks our gods head on. He attacks our gods head on. The idols that, that we build up in our hearts, these Battlegrounds for our own faith, God begins to fight them, not around the edges, but head on. If we, if we begin to build up an idol in our lives of, of a longing and a desire for power, God begins to bring things into our life that make us feel powerless and weak. If we begin to build up in, in our life a, a, a desire and a need and an idol of, of peace and convenience, God begins to give us chaos and trouble. If we begin to build up in our, in our lives a, a, a desire and a, and a longing for, for financial security and money becomes our God, we can expect to find moments of financial instability. God always comes against our idols, the idols of our heart, head on. He doesn't beat around the edges. He doesn't doesn't just come at them off to the side, but he comes at them head on. He demands to be known. God demands to be seen. God demands to be worshiped. He and he alone. There will be no other gods before me, he says. There will be no other idols. There will be nothing else that you are to worship but me and me alone. And so he comes directly at the gods that we have in our lives. And he does that here in Egypt. But there's another reason why I think all of this has come together in this, in this serpent and snake theme. And it's that I think we're to see that there's a direct correlation here between Pharaoh and Satan himself. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that Pharaoh was Satan, but there's a direct correlation that we are to see. There's this direct correlation that we are to understand that that. 
Pharaoh represents at least the prince of evil. He represents Satan. From the very beginning, it's been that way. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you see that Satan begins to show up. How? As a serpent. Satan begins to show up as a snake. God, right away, says that there's always going to be enmity. There's always going to be this battle between, between Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring. There's going to be a battle between mankind and, and the serpent to the very end. And so here, as the Israelites are now enslaved by a man who wears a snake on his head as part of his headdress, of a people who worship serpents and snakes, we're to see this direct correlation. This showdown is more than just Pharaoh against Moses and Aaron. This showdown is against, is God against Satan. It's good against evil. It's righteousness against unrighteousness. This battle is about God. There's some that, that say even this word, this snake word in, in Hebrew is a different word than some of the other snake words that are used in the Old Testament. And the idea behind this is, is that this word, this specific word that's used for this specific snake that Moses' staff turns into, some commentators, some commentators will say that, that it's a different word. It's a word that's used in, in, in later in, in, in the Old Testament for, for crocodile or a rep kind of animal like that. And so some, some people want to say that this snake that, that Moses' staff turns into is a crocodile, but I'm, I, I don't think that's true. Now, it's a different word, I think, because it's a different kind of animal. But I don't think it's a crocodile. I think God sends his snake to defeat Pharaoh's snakes that we're about to see. I think this battle, this battle is not which animal is bigger or better or more ferocious. This is not a zoological battle. This is a theological battle. It's God and Satan. It's good versus evil. And so we're primed to see this. He's given instructions to Aaron. When you get there, you're going to throw your staff down. It's going to become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron do exactly what God has commanded them to do. They go into the throne room. They walk right up before Pharaoh. Pharaoh, I assume, it doesn't tell us this, but we assume that Pharaoh does. It does exactly what God had said, that he's going to ask for proof. And so Aaron does what God had commanded him. He throws his staff before Aaron and his servants, and it becomes a serpent, exactly as God had said. And it's as if, it's as if Aaron walks into the throne room before Pharaoh, throws his staff down, and it becomes a serpent. And he, he, he says, he, he, by doing this, he, he, he says to Pharaoh, your God, this one that you worship, the one that has, is, is, is represented on your headdress, here's your God, and throws it on the ground to crawl in the dust. This God that you worship, look at him now. It would be similar, it would be similar to you and I, or, or, or anyone, it would be similar to anyone walking into the Oval Office 
and lighting the flag on fire and stomping on it on the rug of the eagle right in the middle of the Oval Office. That's what Aaron is doing. It says, these things that are important to you, this God that you worship, here he is. Pharaoh, Pharaoh though is not scared at all. He sees this, he understands it, I think, as a direct threat against his power, against a direct threat against his own sovereignty, a direct threat against his, the, the gods that he worships. Pharaoh sees it, but he's not scared. Instead, he calls in reinforcements. Pharaoh calls in his wise men, he calls in the sorcerers, he calls in these uh, magicians, it says. He calls in his cabinet of advisors, it says, this is what we have. This is the scenario that you see. Aaron is throwing down his staff. There's a, there's a serpent right here in the middle of the throne room. And so they began to put their heads together. And they're able to create their own serpents, it tells us. In fact, it tells us again, it says, they use their secret arts to come up with these serpents. Again, uh, this, this idea is, uh, there, there's no confusion. I, I think as Moses writes this and as, as we read it and we hear it, we're not to think that these guys were able to use some kind of special trick that they had. They, 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 in fact, as I, as I read this week, there's several commentators that might say that, that there's a, a natural explanation for this, that, that there was this group of, snake charmers in Egypt at the time, and they were, they were able to pinch the head of a snake and make it go rigid so that it looked, like, it looked like a staff, and they would carry it around that way as a staff, but when they would release the nerve that they had pinched in his head, they could throw it down and it would become a snake again. I don't think that's true. And I think Moses wants us to see that, that these guys, they were able to do, they were, they, 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 made their staff, their wooden staff, turn into a reptile. They used their secret arts to do it. And he even says it that way so that we automatically know this is Satan's power at work. These, this secret magic, this dark magic that gets used, these secret arts that get used, it's Satan at work in this confrontation. It's evil versus good, it's God versus Satan. So his cabinet comes in, his advisors, his sorcerers and magicians, they come in, they, they put their secret arts together and they are able to duplicate exactly what's happened. Moses' staff has turned into a serpent. Their staffs have turned into serpents because of their secret arts. And I have to tell you that more snakes is not better. They did not make it better. When they added, when they added to the issue at hand, it did not go from kind of bad to much better. It went from kind of bad to much, much worse. Now there's all kinds of snakes around. And that's exactly what happens as Satan gets involved in, in these problems. We don't get more order, we get more chaos. We get more and more distracted from the issue at hand. Satan, Satan, does not, Satan does not want us to turn our eyes to the God of order, but instead he wants to distract us by 
adding to the level of chaos. And that's exactly what happens here. One commentator I read this week said it this way. He says, Satan is always a counterfeiter and never a creator. All Satan can do is to add to the trouble of what we already have. But he doesn't provide the solutions. He manipulates the things of God to turn our eyes away from him. And we are so easily distracted. God's ready, though, for the distraction. It's a different word for snake. I already said that. And I think it's because of what we're about to see right here. This snake is unlike any other snake you've ever seen. Aaron's staff, the snake that Aaron's staff turned into, turns to the other snakes that have been created by secret magic and swallows them up. He swallows them up. Swallows them up. Swallowing up your enemy, especially in Egypt at this time, but I think this is still probably true. It would have been true for a long time. Swallowing your enemy would have been the, 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 the ultimate victory. When you swallow up your enemy, you, you gain their power by swallowing them up. That would have been the idea that Pharaoh would have had. Much like, much like the idea of, of eating the heart of your hunting trophy that you kill. That same idea. And, and I want you to picture this because I think it's a, 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 it is the picture of God's power and sovereignty here in this throne room. This snake turns, a snake that we, we can't hardly fathom, I think, because we, we, we can't even comprehend it. Because when snakes, think about this, when snakes swallow something, they don't gulp it down, right? They bite it and then they work it through their system and it slowly inches its way down. That's not what happened. I don't, I don't think all these guys stood around and saw Moses's or Aaron's staff go to the first snake and slowly inch its way down and then move over to the next snake. And, and, and I don't think they stood there for three days watching it happen. I think Aaron's snake turned and opened its mouth really, really wide and gulped them down and they were gone. Swallowed them up whole and they disappeared. God's power and sovereignty was on display. This is a prelude to the plagues. It ends in a swallow. And the end, the conclusion of the plagues, ends in a swallow. Moses talks about it in. Exodus chapter 15, after I'm giving away a part of the story, but at the end of this story, the Israelites are out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea, and God opens up the Red Sea so that they can walk through on dry land. And as they walk through to the other side, Pharaoh and his army enter into the Red Sea, chasing after the Israelites. And you guys know what happens, right? The Red Sea closes in on them. And right after that, immediately after that, right away in chapter 15, Moses sings a song and tells the story 
of what God has just accomplished. And Moses, as he sings the song, he says this in Exodus chapter 15. It's on the screen. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and wonder? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. It begins with a swallow and it ends with a swallow. The sea covers Pharaoh and his army and the threat is over. The chaos has been contained. Death is no longer imminent. The chase is over and peace has arrived and God is victorious. It wasn't good news for Pharaoh when Aaron's staff snake swallowed his cabinet's snakes. It wasn't good news for Pharaoh when the sea closed in on he and his army and swallowed them up. But it was good news for the Israelites. Paul uses this same picture, though, not just to remind us of the Israelites, but he points out that it's good news for us. The same word, swallow, Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Maybe you've already been thinking about it as we've shared this morning. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not inch by inch, but in one big gulp, death is swallowed up in victory. Our hope today Our hope today is in a God who swallows up the idols and the gods that come before him, who swallows up the armies that are coming after, who swallows up death itself. Our hope is in a God who is victorious and sovereign in all ways and in all times. Worship team is gonna come this morning and we're gonna sing I don't know for you where the battlegrounds are for you. I don't know what the idols are, the little G gods that are in your life. But my hope this morning is that you're not distracted. That you're not, that your eyes aren't turned to the chaos and the disorder that gets brought on by by our little gods and the idols of our heart by Satan himself oftentimes. But instead this morning that you will lift your eyes to the one who swallows up our idols, who swallows up our enemies, who swallows up death itself and gives us hope in Jesus. Stand with me as we sing together.
benediction today comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let us declare he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion.